Well, good morning, church. It's a delight for Alicia and I to be able to come to share the good hand of the Lord and also to open the Word of God. And uh, we obviously could not do this if it wasn't for God's grace on our lives and also for those who faithfully have prayed and been a part of the ministry that God has entrusted to us. Alicia and I have four kiddos. We couldn't bring them with us on this trip. We love to come together on many of our journeys. They are currently in the Atlanta, Georgia, Noonan, Georgia area with some friends, and we're very thankful that they are uh, stewarding them well so that we could kind of get away on a, on a weekend together before I head back to uh, Korea and then on to the Philippines for ministry in the next uh, tomorrow, actually, but I'm there for the next few weeks. But I just want to say, as we sit here, I believe we can all agree right at the beginning that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so Calvary Bible is God's church, and as I stand here to speak, and yet as Jesus being the head of the church, the head always needs a body, a local body, the church, to operate in Calvary Bible is no exception. It's quite literally the hands, the feet, the mouth of God in this community and even beyond today. In fact, the church literally is the hands to do God's ministry, the feet to run in the mouth of God, the hands to do Christ's work, feet to run upon His errands, and a voice to speak His word. And I am grateful I've had the privilege I think more than any other missionary from this church, I'm not sure, to join your elders on a couple occasions to go to the Shepherds Conference, to take in from the Word and with other faithful proclaimers of the Word, and, and to see how God has used Calvary to send out other members to plant new churches. I believe that that's something that God inspired your leaders to be a part of, and you in the church, as a church has embraced God's plan, and I am grateful. We've kind of stood at a distance and prayed and been very grateful for God's kindness in your life and ministry together. Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. As you're turning there, Al Mohler has stated, imagine how ignorant we would be if we did not have the book of Acts. The New Testament would be about 12% shorter than it is. We would have in the New Testament a collection of letters from a man named Paul, whom we, whom we barely know. And uh, in fact, in Acts, or without Acts, there would be no account of Peter's encounter with Cornelius that we find in Acts chapter 10. No narrative of the rise of the multi-ethnic church body known as the church in Antioch. And in Acts, we not only discover about Paul's conversion experience, which we find out about through his testimony, but also three missionary journeys. And in many ways, we discover how Acts is foundational to the church's understanding of itself. And so we turn to a very rich book, and I want to walk you through a story in Acts of a very ordinary guy who literally changed the world. And I want to end by sharing with you at least three lessons that either shaped his life or had a profound impact that went way beyond whatever he ever viewed he could have and I believe could shape your life and you could have a greater impact even in our world today than you can imagine. My subject is simply entitled, God Uses Ordinary People. 
Now, considering the structure of the book of Acts, it reminds me how it falls into two divisions. The first division is we have the mission of the church, and that is of the church in Jerusalem, and goes out from chapters 1 to 12, and then the mission of Paul, chapters 13 to 28. Now, how many of you are familiar with the acrostic when it comes to prayer, A-C-T-S? Raise your hand. All right, just about everybody. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Acts can also have a similar acrostic, and I'll try to review that with you here. Because as you think of Acts, you think of A. What does that represent? Church, A stands for in prayer, adoration, right? C stands for confession, T, thanksgiving, S. And as I look at that, I think of ascension is in chapters 1 to 11 in the book of Acts. A for ascension, uh, uh, the ascension of of the Holy Spirit departing, I mean, Jesus departing, the Holy Spirit coming down in Acts chapter 1, and then the church ignited, going out, of course, the message Peter preached at Pentecost, but in Acts chapter 1, 12, through chapter 8, 1, we have C, the church. So A, ascension, C, church, T, trouble, chapters 8 and 12, and then we have ascent, And that is the first missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul in chapters 13 to 28. And so you have an acrostic you could follow along with the the letters A-C-T-S. But in Acts chapters 6 and 7, we're told about this ordinary man you know as Stephen. So if you have your Bibles, meet me in Acts. We're going to be in Acts 6 and 7 in various verses. But while you're turning to Acts, let me just begin with the context or the construct Because Stephen was not an apostle, and I want you to see this very clearly in this story, because Stephen is not one of the twelve, he was just an ordinary guy, but Stephen's story marks a turning point in the book of Acts, and that's incredible to me, because up until this point, as far as we know, the gospel movement in the New Testament has yet to leave the borders of Jerusalem. We know Jesus had clearly told the apostles in Acts 1.8 that his plan was for the gospel to go out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and obviously to the ends of the earth. So even though Jesus was crystal clear about his commission, the Great Commission, it wasn't until about the end of chapter 6 that you start to see development for that movement to take place because by the end of chapter 6 you still have the apostles all together in Jerusalem now without question it's been an exciting journey so far there have been numbers of miracles baptisms which I told you're having in a couple weeks here which is exciting where people proclaim their faith publicly declaring what God has done in their life We also have people struck dead for lying. We have offerings and such. But at the end of the day, the gospel has yet to physically go out in body, person, with people carrying it to plant churches. But that's going to change here with the story of Stephen. So Stephen's story is in the Bible, and I believe it in part. It's given to demonstrate what God desires to do through ordinary men and women in the church, what it's supposed to look like. So my goal for us today is to discover this one thing, how God delights, and does He delight to do this, to do His greatest work through ordinary people like you and me. And so if you gain nothing else, remember God desires to use you in 
his work. So Stephen's story begins in chapter 6. So if you're there with me, I would ask you, if you're able, if you're not, that's fine, but to stand as we read God's word together in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. It says in Acts 6, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, and, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the, of the freedom, as it was called, and of Cyrenius, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Here we have an account of what many people refer to as the first deacons, but let's think about it from God's word a bit more. You can be seated. Luke is linked with the spread of God's word with church growth. This cause and effect relationship has continued throughout history. In the book of Acts, from chapter 1, or chapter 3, 1 onward, it shows the advance of the gospel and the response of people were the apostles' primarily concern. It wasn't just the information given to the people, it was the response of the people. Look again with me at Acts 6 and verse 7. We read that, but let's follow along one more time where it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the attenders in church multiplied. Is that what it says? What does it say, church? The disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see the word many, or in some Bibles, a great many, priests in Jerusalem were also becoming Christians. One writer estimated about 2,000 priests lived in Jerusalem at this time. Stephen is selected to deliver food to widows so that the apostles could more closely focus on what? Prayer and the word, right? The ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. Stephen's job was quite ordinary. He was not given some outstanding title or position as a teacher or president. From verse 4, it's evident that Stephen, along with the other six men, were not considered theological leaders of the early church. Many Bible students regard these seven men as the first deacons of the church. However, the Greek text never uses the term deacon to describe them. In fact, John MacArthur notes that they, these seven men, were not deacons in terms of the latter 
church office that we find in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, although they perform some of the same type of duties. I think it's more likely that these men would represent a stage in the, de- in the development of what later would be called as deacons, the office of the deacon. They probably served as a model for this office. This office typically, or an office typically, follows function. And that's what I believe is happening right here. Well, what was Stephen's job? Well, we know because the scripture says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6 that he was given a specific job to accomplish. In verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right we should give up preaching the word. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So these seven men were summoned, summoned or given an opportunity to serve in the body, the church, in a way that was needful. These verses indicate to us that Stephen did his job so well that the witness, his witness, was so full of the Holy Spirit that he got the attention of many in the community, including the priests, the religious leaders, who began to turn to faith in Christ. What a great thing, right? People doing their job faithfully doing it well, and those even who profess to be some great giants of the faith find themselves in need of turning to the Lord through that testimony. Obviously, his actions and lifestyle became inviting to some, but rebuking to others. The text says some of the religious leaders, verse 9, were not excited about this new Christianity thing or Stephen's witness. So they began to try to discredit Stephen. You have to love this verse in verse 10, chapter 6. But they could not withstand what? The wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You have to wonder. God has a great sense of humor. Wisdom coming from not some theological uh, giant of the faith in the community, but from an ordinary man who is wise, filled with the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, if you would turn to there, verse 12, it says, And they, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up on him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. This was the Jewish supreme court consisting, I'm told, of about 71 and was led by the high priest, Stephen proceeds to give the longest recorded message we find in the scriptures. That's longer than Apostle Paul's or anybody else's sermon is coming from Stephen. He shares a pretty detailed history of Israel, showing how the entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And the sermon comes to its climax in verse 54 of chapter 7. So let's skip to the end of Stephen's sermon. Notice with me in verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were happy. No, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young 
man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now often we stop there, which is really unfortunate because the story continues in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we see in verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, what does it say, church? Judea and Samaria. And then what does it say? Except the apostles. I want you to underline those last three words. If you write in your Bible, it says, except the apostles. That's a key turning point in Acts. Notice in verse 4, it says, now those who were scattered, what did they do? They went about preaching the word. Is, is there anyone in the house connecting the dots? Who's preaching the word? These ordinary people. Think about it. This was the first time the gospel left Jerusalem. In Acts 6, we read of how the apostles appointed leadership for the special needs of the church. These servant leaders didn't just hand out food and funds. No, to the needy, which was important. They worked like an extension of the apostles' ministry in preaching the word as well. You should know that this was the first time that I see that the gospel leaves Jerusalem. Seven chapters in, and not a single apostle is involved yet. That is, one of the twelve. Stephen's witness provoked a riot, and the writer of Acts, Luke, seems to go out of his way to show there's not a single apostle out there that's going out preaching the word. By the way, from this point on, ordinary people were going to be at the forefront of the gospel movement around the world. Stephen Nell, in his book, The History of Christian Missions, points out that by the end of the first century, there were three church planting centers in the world. One was in Antioch, one was in Alexandria, and the other was in Rome. He says this was amazing because by all three of these churches' planting endeavors, God was working through ordinary people, how these churches evidently were planted by a bunch of ordinary people. And so we turn then to Acts 11, verse 19 to 22. If you move forward in your Bibles, Acts 11, verse 19, we read these words. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. What are they doing? Speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Also, what are they doing? Preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This report, of the report of this, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So we discover that some who were scattered because of the persecution planted a church in Antioch. We don't know the names of these ordinary people, but these men planted a church that one day would actually send out the Apostle Paul, who we all tend to admire because of the letters that are left, the Pauline epistles and so forth, to the churches primarily or to church leaders to give further instruction. In Acts chapter 28, verses 14 to 15, is another text that I'd like you to Turn with me to Acts 28, 
verse 14b, at the end of 14, we see these brothers, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to, what does it say, what city? Rome. And then it says, and the brothers there, when they heard about it, came as far as these other locations in order to meet up with the Apostle Paul. So here we have in Acts 28, the churches in Italy and Rome are alluded to. And it's amazing when you stop to think about this passage because Paul spent much of his time and effort trying to get the gospel where? To Rome. You will see that he is desiring to get there. He's met prior when he arrives in Rome by the brethren. The gospel had already arrived, thankfully, from some ordinary people who had come and had planted the church. It's unknown how these believers actually got there. But there was an estimated, at least from history, about 50,000 Jews living in Rome at the time of Paul's arrival before Paul's Roman imprisonment and before the Roman persecution. So throughout the book of Acts, Paul continually talks about, I want to preach Christ where Christ has never been named. I got to get the gospel to Rome. In order to get the gospel to Rome, what happened to Paul? Paul went through beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, has snake bites dangling on his arm. This is what it takes to get the gospel to Rome. And finally, the apostle Paul makes it to Rome in Acts 28, 14. When he arrives, he's greeted by the answer, brothers. Some more ordinary, unnamed men look at the apostle Paul, no doubt, and said, you know, we have a church planted here. Wouldn't it be great if we had some more of your writings that we could we could share with the people here because that would be so helpful. And what we learn here is that Paul didn't go and found the church. He, he did find it. He discovered the church. It wasn't a church plant. It was a church discovery. And examining a cursory overview, I've discovered there are at least 100 names in Acts and the epistles of different people associated with Paul. And Paul refers to 36 of the, them with the name like brethren. Apostle, fellow worker, servant, ordinary people. So here's the takeaway from the life of Stephen and many more in the New Testament. And that is God wants to use you and me. He does his greatest work through ordinary people and acts. There are well-known missionary leaders like Paul and Peter, but a great bulk of missionary work is carried out by some unnamed, unknown men and women, all serving an extraordinary God. Can we say amen? Part of God's providential, gracious plan. In His kindness, He loves to do that. Historically, you can go back and study it, but the gospel has traveled further and faster on the shoulders of businessmen, teachers, doctors, and common people than it ever has through the apostolic effort now, let me assure you, this is not in any shape or form to diminish the work of pastors and missionaries. I'm one of those. But Paul states in Ephesians 4.12, and he gave some apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what reason? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So not solely a pastor, not solely the missionary, but the saints are tasked to do the work of the ministry. So, brothers and sisters, my question to you today is, are you doing the work of the ministry? You are the hands, the feet. 
to the head of the church. The question then is, what will happen, or I would ask you, what would happen if you began to see your skill as a tool given to you by God for the furtherance of the gospel? Do you see that today? It's interesting in Proverbs 22, verse 29, it says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I can guarantee you, even if I had not met you before, and I'm grateful I could meet some brand new people here, and there's others that I've known for some time that have come up to me and said, I remember when you came many, many years ago and, and uh, mentioned your prayers for us and for the work of the ministry, and I am so grateful. I don't know if you know this or not, but you've sent young people to Korea to work in some of our camps, and they did a phenomenal job as the backbone of some of our English camps that we had in Korea when I was directing our camping ministry, and I'm very grateful for that. We've had some that have come to the Bible Institute on Jeju Island to study the Word of God for a year and to saturate themselves in the Word and then to go on and continue in the faith, and I'm grateful. But I believe God has equipped you personally with skills to be used to further the gospel wherever you are planted. You've heard the saying, wherever you are planted, or no, bloom where you are planted, right? You are called to be God's ambassador wherever you are. And many of you have a skill. You're good at it. Perhaps your skill could be in sales. It could be in construction. It could be medical, education, or a trade. Whatever it is, God-given skills are given to you to be strategic, to be on mission for His glory. Pastor Randy and I have just met for the very first time coming today because I had not been here since he had been here previously serving with you. But I can guarantee to you that he cannot reach all of Fort Worth on his own efforts even though he's been trained so well under a faithful pastor in his past. But God wants to use you to do a work with your pastor and elders, that way exceeds any one person. I know in today's culture, it's complicated to share your faith. Some business communities, you can't just go into the workplace and say, I'm going to clock in and then share your testimony of how, what God's doing in your life. But I do think there are places where you can. It could be over a lunch. It could be over coffee. It could be where you are inviting them to your home. I can see that Stephen didn't seem to care about opening his mouth and declaring what God was doing in his life. It's obviously, it, was, it wasn't easy in his day, and it actually cost him his life. And for some, it could cost you, too. Martin Luther remarked, the milkmaid and the manure hauler have the noblest of vocations, for they are doing God's work in the world. Well, I remember sitting down with an accountability partner at the Waffle House in Chattanooga, Tennessee, about the time that I had gotten to know your former pastor. And at the time, I shared various excuses why I could not go to South Korea. I'd been there on a short-term mission trip along with the Philippines, and I began to tell him all the reasons why I was not the right person. In other words, I wasn't old enough, I didn't know the language, uh, and I needed a team. And I remember specifically that day, that gentleman who was my accountability partner got out his keys out of his pocket, and he says, Mike, your life is similar to a key. He says, each one of these keys has a hole in a door that you place it in, whether it's a car or a house, and it will open when you turn it. If you don't put the key in, you'll never know if it's an open door or not. And he began to challenge me to put my life into God's 
door to be willing to go anywhere, even if it meant South Korea. And I remember how I said for the first time in my life, yes, Lord. Coming back to the dorm, watching a basketball game, I received a phone call from my brother, Steve. My brother says, I don't know what you're doing right now, but he says, I'm working on the grandfather's farm. And he said, I can't get out of my mind all the people that we saw on that short-term mission trip. And I just somehow think maybe, maybe, maybe God would have us to start something for his honor and glory. And maybe we should just be willing to go to Word of Life together to see if they would be willing to allow us to pioneer a new work. And between the conversation I had with my accountability partner, between a conversation with my, bro- my brother, I started to see God confirming that that key was a door that could be open to us. And sure enough, a year later, it was the Summer Olympics in 1988 that we found ourselves in Seoul, Korea, beginning language school. Well, I can t- tell you this. When you turn on the news at night or listen to the radio in your car, you a lot often will hear a lot of negative reports, do you not? And we live in a very dark, dark world. And it could seem to you very discouraging. Like, I just can't believe we're living in such a day where this is happening. In I could have not thought 20 years ago this would be happening in our culture, in our land today. And some people get very discouraged. But I believe you can be encouraged because this provides an opportunity, not an obstacle for the gospel. In fact, the darker the world is, the brighter the light of the gospel through the local church should shine. Because God does His best work when men and women commit themselves to God's purpose and allow His light to shine through them no matter what the challenges or difficulties may be. I always find it astounding that China... When they kicked out their missionaries from their country, it did not diminish the gospel in the church. It actually became the seeds of suffering, a persecuted church that allowed the gospel and the church to grow further than it ever did under missionary movements in the past. Do you know, I love the Chinese character that's used for crises. It's a symbol, you know, they don't use, you know, Roman or Latin, they use Chinese symbols. And there's two characters in their symbol. One is, for our English word, uh, crises. One is obstacle. The other is opportunity. And that's how everything is in our life. When there's an obstacle, when there's a great challenge, if you're looking, God desires to seize that for His glory through an opportunity for you and me to get involved. And so I have a Another good pastor friend, Phil Mosier, who writes these biblical strategy books, and he encouraged me once in this very factor. He said, please encourage other churches, wherever they may be, to shine the light brighter today than ever before, because when we live in a dark world, it's the time that the church can be, have its finest hour. While I'm looking at the apostle's life, we do not find him running away from the darkness, nor does he have a complaining disposition. In fact, in Philippians 2, what does the apostle Paul do? Well, the apostle described the world as a crooked and twisted generation. Does that sound familiar today? So the darker the world becomes, the brighter the light can shine. So if the world at Paul's time was crooked and twisted, then how much more is it today? How then should we live? Answer, Certainly from the life of Stephen and those ordinary saints who were scattered due to persecution, we can take away at least three 
valuable lessons or insights. So if you have your little outline before, you may want to jot these down. Lesson number one from the life of Stephen, I believe we can learn this lesson, and that is to be spirit-led. The first reason Stephen was greatly used by God was because he was ready to be used. He was filled. He was controlled by the Spirit. We see that in verse 5 of chapter 6. He's full of faith. Verse 8, he's full of grace. Verse 10, he's full of wisdom. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 55, we see that he's full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's power. Now, this word full means that he was complete or fully covered. That can only happen when you are submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit. He knows his emptiness apart from Christ, and so he made sure he was filled up before being used. That's a great example to you and me. Do you know the most common characteristic repeated about Stephen is that his life was filled with the Holy Spirit? What's the biggest characteristic that can be said about you and me amongst people that know you? Billy Graham once said, one of the greatest needs of the church today is to come back to the scriptures as the basis of authority and to study prayerfully independence of the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the power of the Spirit within them. It is the knowledge of the power of the Spirit that tends to make the difference. When you wake up in the morning, you recognize you have a choice. You can choose to simply read God's Word and then just not even think about it the rest of the day or dwell on the Word of God richly and ask the Spirit of God to allow you to be filled with His Spirit to do His work. Jesus made extraordinary promises about the power and potential of the Spirit within believers. If you take a look at John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus, uh, it's noted here, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus is saying, it is to your advantage, he's telling his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do go away, the helper will not If I do not go away, it says the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Now, how would it be, just think about it, how would it be an advantage for Jesus to leave? I mean, how awesome would it be to walk around with Jesus for three years and you can have everyday conversations and prayer times together physically with Jesus? How awesome it would be to have Jesus right by your side. Am I not right? Wouldn't you love that? Wake up this morning, Jesus, sit down with me. We can have a cup of coffee. This would be great. And now he says, if you understand things, it's actually to your advantage that I leave. Because it's only when I go away that you're going to get the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So think about it. Pastor Randy, I know he's just begun his itinerary as your shepherd, teacher, pastor, elder here. He's been an elder and you've known him, but now he's leading. He says next week, you know, friends, I love Calvary Bible, but at the end of this year, I didn't recognize all the responsibilities I would have. I'm going to be leaving, but it's going to be to your advantage because Jesus is going to be your next pastor. How would you respond? Well, think about it this way. The good news is, is that God has given to you and me the Holy Spirit which is to our advantage if we are plugged in and allowing him to live out through us. Not that Pastor Andy's to leave or anything. I'm not asking that. But Stephen understood what Jesus was talking about. He had the advantage. The book of Acts is all about ordinary people following the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit shows up 50 times in Acts. And Stephen understood the Holy Spirit spoke. And so he willingly listened and he followed. He obeyed. Lesson number two. Lesson one, what was it? Be Spirit-led. Lesson number two. If you're following closely along here, it's insightful. But we not only are to pray, we should pray for boldness. Is that your first go-to when you pray? What makes Stephen amazing was his confidence, a confidence he apparently gained by an awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence within him. We know as the early church faced persecution, these believers did not huddle together and pray for safety, which we as American church tend to do as our first go-to, but prayed mostly and intentionally for boldness. So let me read what the church believers asked for in Acts 4, verse 29. This is, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to, that we might continue to speak your word with all, what's the word? Boldness. In verse 30, it continues, but I just want you to see this. Praying for boldness is one of the greatest things that you and I can do in this generation. Lesson number three, delight to do God's will. In Acts 7, 59 to 60, it says, Do not hold this sin against them. This is Stephen as he's being stoned, just as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see Stephen praying because he understands something bigger that's going on here and something more needful. 1 Peter 4, 14 says, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's amazing. So Stephen is being just like our Savior when he prayed those words in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And at this point of death, Stephen is demonstrating this type of forgiveness that can only come from the great forgiver. And the more you are forgiven, the easier it is for you to forgive And when you recognize how much you've been forgiven. Paul affirms in Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us because it's only through the outpouring of His love that we can ever, ever hope to have in us this type of forgiveness when we're wronged ourselves. Stephen not only teaches us to be Spirit-led now, but he teaches us to be bold. He had a full life and he died a good death. Look at verse 55 of chapter 7. If you have your Bibles open, it says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now that's very interesting because most passages say that Jesus is seated in the heavens. Am I right? Why would he be standing Well, Pastor John MacArthur offers this explanation. He says, he sat down in terms of redemption, but he always gets up when his children are in trouble. So, be spirit-led, pray for boldness, and delight to do God's will. In closing, let me just ask you to consider how are these areas in your life becoming more and more a part of your worldview? Stephen was used by God, and other unnamed ordinary men were men of conviction. They were men who were bold, but ordinary people in Stephen's day who were scattered due to the persecution boldly proclaimed the gospel and planted churches. So never ever think, you know, I don't have a significant title. 
I didn't go off to uh, the master's seminary and get the greatest degree, therefore I can't be. Never think that way in your life. God wants to use each one of you magnificently for his honor and glory. And the gospel is spread on the feet of ordinary men and women often because they've simply surrendered themselves to God. And relational evangelism is how the majority of people come to Christ. And that's why one of our goals within our ministry is to see teenagers to be equipped to share their faith with other teenagers. And so that every teen everywhere can hear the gospel from a friend and that every teen everywhere can be growing in their Christian walk and that the youth leaders and parents are able to equip more of the church family to be involved in conversational evangelism and and discipleship is something that is a part of what they want to do, not something they have to do. Only Christ's grace and his gospel can assist us with the life he's called us to live. And so I offer you today the opportunity to do as Isaiah chapter 6 of old said, Lord, here am I, send me. I don't know the last time you were challenged, young people, to consider becoming an occupational Christian servant somewhere in the world. But if you've never been challenged, let me challenge you with this. Don't expect some mysterious call that's coming down with a loud voice calling out to your name. Instead, recognize you've already been called. It's just a matter of you answer the call. And that is to be strategic wherever you are. Be on mission for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us not only something that's valuable, but an opportunity to put our trust in and to be able to have an anchor for our soul. And may what has been spoken today honor and glorify you. And may the church continue to arise, to be the light in the community that you've called us to be in a dark, dark world. Thank you for the examples of other men and women throughout Scripture who got it, who recognized they served a big, unbelievably wonderful, amazing, powerful God who could do far greater than what they could ask or think. And so may, may we continue to realize, as it says in Jeremiah 33:3, and you've promised you will answer us and show us great and mighty things that we don't even know about. May that be the case continually for the saints, for the church, for the leaders here at Calvary Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.